Have you ever wondered how the separate threads of your life fit in to one big picture? How the individual moments of challenge and triumph connect to one another to form the great meaning of your life? I am Anna Mullins, your Life Story Editor, and I'm convinced that making sense of our deepest pain can help us understand our deepest purpose. In my speaker training program and on this podcast, I help people weave together those confusing, often shameful pieces of their past, revealing the life-changing lessons that create their profound new story. Welcome to Unapologetic Stories, where secrets are out and the truth is in. Here are some words you may commonly associate with grief. Sad, heavy, painful. Here are some less common words you may associate with grief. Inevitable and unavoidable. Here are some other words you may never think to associate with grief. Elevating, life-affirming, and heavenly. Those words, those beautiful words, were written by my guest today. A little insight into the depth of knowledge we will be getting today. In fact, those words actually opened her groundbreaking keynote talk, which she delivered just a few short weeks ago to an online audience at our unapologetic speaker event entitled Home, just weeks before the launch of her brand new book, Conscious Grieving, The Path of Awakening Through Loss. She is also an educator and a registered counselor whose purpose is to offer the safety of a conscious space for those who are longing for peace and clarity. Her work is informed by her deep passion to create opportunities for inward development and purpose-led transformation. In her private practices and workshops, she focuses on supporting individuals and teams in cultivating deep awareness and creating conscious connections which lead to powerful ripples, I can attest to that, powerful ripples of healing and joy in all areas of our lives. She speaks and teaches on topics such as mental health, holistic wellness, self and community care, grief and loss, and conscious leadership. And you can find her at mindonspirit.com. But today you can find her right here sitting across from me on this podcast, Unapologetic Stories, gracing us with her unapologetically profound wisdom and love. Welcome, Tara Nay. I'm <laughs> so happy to have you here. Thank you, darling. Such a joy to be here with you. And I find it so hilarious that it's like such a beautiful introduction. And the first thing I think is like, oh dear, that's a bit of an ego rub. I put the ego aside right away. We're talking about consciousness here. No egos allowed. (laughs) No egos allowed. See, this is why I say it for you. I get to just like embrace you with all of the magic and wonder that I believe you are. And I do truly, uh, and I say this sort of humbly on your behalf, I am really, really grateful to have you here. And I know how much you will provide to our audience and to our guests today, just in our conversations that we've had, you've always been so deep and so thoughtful. And even leading up to our recording today, you said every, you know, your work is just spirit led, and it truly is. And so I hope that is what our audience feels as well coming through their ear. So I wanted to start today with the big question, which is around your book, Conscious Grieving. Mm -hmm. Most people really do imagine that grief is, as you said in your talk, and as I just repeated back here, that grief is sad, it's heavy, it's painful, and it's unavoidable. What prompted you to write a book about this complex topic of grief? Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) I really, you know, that question that uh, we are sometimes asked, which is, um, who were you before the world told you who who you should be? Yes. I had been pondering that question probably for the past, like, seven to eight years. Um, Around the time that I got pregnant with my first child, I think it like really came crashing in. It's like, wait a minute. 
wait a minute, before you go on living your life in these identities of now mother and worker right. and uh, housewife and all of these things, um, who are you really? Who have you always been? So that the seed of it started there. And I think this other question of if money was no object, what would you be doing with your life? And for me, it was always, I would be writing and I would be speaking. That was it. Those, that was all, that's always been the answer. And so I knew that I wanted to write and I had started the process of writing. And to be honest, I never thought I was going to write about grief. It wasn't interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to start writing. And right now I'm going to write about grief. (laughs) Um, However, I just started writing uh, because it was time. It was time. I had put it off long enough. I had kind of like curtailed it to the side as like, oh, mini hobby here, mini hobby there. Um, But I really felt like I needed to listen. I needed to listen to this inner knowing that I had to write. So I had started writing, and to be honest, I was writing two, what I thought were two completely separate books. One happened to be a book of poetry about loss. At the time that I was writing it, I had just lost my grandmother. And, you know, people who end up reading my book will read a little bit more about my story around this here, but essentially she was my biggest spiritual teacher and such a profound figure in my life and I was already spiritual by nature and I was shocked that when she passed away I was so derailed I was so derailed I didn't know my up from down and right from left and all the things that I had always believed like we are spirits embodied and she is with me always in in always in all ways you know I knew all of that you know quote unquote I knew all of that right but the human part of me that was in grief was desperately in grief Hmm. and so I was using my writing particularly of poetry at that time to support me in reconnecting back to spirit because my grandmother was a spiritual poet herself she was published she was um well-known in the Sufi community as a profound teacher and writer. And so my writing of poetry was a way for me to connect to her, but also to that deeper knowing that spirit was supporting me in my process of grief. So that was one book I was writing. And I was writing a separate book, I thought at the time, I was writing a separate book about um, the process of conscious awakening. How do we come home to ourselves? And I really thought that these were two different books and I was kind of tinkering a little bit with each. And then one Tuesday morning in July in 2019, I woke up with the clear knowing that these are not two separate books. These are two sides of the same book. And as soon as I had that thought, it was like, It was even more than saying a seed was planted because it was, it was coming in fast. (laughs) Like it, there was no denying it. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. I was like, no, 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 this is it. This is like, it was knocking so hard at my door. Like, hello, hello. You know what it is now? You know what it is? Right, right, right. That uh, I spent all of Wednesday organizing childcare for my two kids. I (laughs) told my partner, on the Wednesday evening, I said, I know we haven't talked about this, but I have to go away. I have to write. Wow. And he's like, okay. I'm like, I have all the kid things organized. I'm leaving tomorrow morning. I woke up on the Thursday morning. I left the house at 5 a.m. <laughs> I went to Maine Island where my sister has a home. It was empty at the time. And I just, I arrived and I started writing around noon on that Thursday. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I maybe slept a few hours in the night and I woke up on Friday and I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I woke up on Saturday and did the same. And shortly after noon on Saturday, it was done. Oh my word. <laughs> it was done. Um, so with that, it was like the book was ready. The message was ready. It was coming. And I knew 
I was the channel because it, it had knocked hard and I was awake enough to realize it is knocking. Open the goddamn door. <laughs> oh, I just love this so much. I love this so much. And I, I mean, I don't know if our listeners have kind of picked up on this along the way. It's something you and I know have dialogued around. Mm-hmm. Is it such an interesting kind of awakening into non-duality mm-hmm. from a place of duality? From the place of, you know, I know that I'm consciousness. I know that I am consciousness in disguise. I know that I am spirit. I know that I'm tapped into that, that deeper foundation of who we all are, where we are, you know, before the world got in the way, as you said. And yet there is this physical manifestation Yes. where I'm, I think what I'm hearing and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's where the sadness and the heaviness was living in that space. And your book also started off in duality and somehow transformed itself into non-duality. I mean, that feels very magical to me. <laughs> what a, what an incredible... Sparkle, yeah. sparkle. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think it's one of those things where I joked at the beginning when you did the introduction, like, oh my God, put the ego aside. But like <laughs> our ego, our form, our way of presenting in the world, our way of being is a gift because it can be the channel through which this consciousness can live Ah, through which we can channel that which is uniquely ours to allow into the world and for me this book happened to be one of those things Mm. and so I was situated I was already writing I was already saying yes to uh, divine interventions I was already saying yes to trusting the timing of my life I was already saying yes to the deeper callings and yes to what feels like unapologetically me if I hadn't done that work when spirit came knocking on the door with like hello this book needs to be written and you know the things (laughs) I wouldn't have opened the door I would have been like oh I'm not dressed right what am I gonna say? Uh, I have no tea to serve them. You know, very Persian of me. <laughs> I would have totally flipped out. No tea. But I didn't because I had done that work to know. Yeah, this is it, and mm-hmm. and then that's where we become the most mm, highly attuned and sensitized and sensitive conduits mm. for the work that needs to be birthed into the world. I want to say also, going back to your question of like, how did I come to write a book about grief? I mean, I kind of told you like the process, but the reality is in reflecting it and in writing about it, what I've realized is that maybe I never consciously thought like in my mind, like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I've decided to become an author and I'm going to write about grief, but it had always been the gateway because when I paused long enough, to look at the landscape of my life, to Mm -hmm. look at the ways in which I had grown into who I have become so far in my life, grief had always been a doorway through a deeper knowing and a deeper awakening within myself. Mm. So this book is not just some philosophical thing, I think, and it's not just a memoir of my experience. It's something in between. Yeah. I come by it honestly. Like Mm -hmm. this was my way this was my personal way Mm -hmm. my experience of collective grief my experience of personal grief yeah my experience of existential grief and my experience as a counselor holding space for other people who were grieving the death of everything not just of people the death of everything these were all gateways to deeper awakening within myself right And so it was always like, um, perhaps I didn't know it, but it was always the doorway through which I was going to share this work. And so maybe I didn't know that I was going to write about grief or my first book was going to be about grief. But my own personal unfolding came through that door. And so it's kind of a really beautiful way to invite others to step through their door as well particularly because grief is unavoidable and is inevitable mm-hmm. and is universal. Yeah. And so many of us are feeling it in so many ways right now. 
Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, great point. And I think this is probably why I resonate with you so much is exactly this last point that you made. And I'm sure I'm hopeful that my listeners as well feel this way is it is sort of the human experience to use pain and use grief as catalyst to our purpose. It is this calling in a sense to pull through, pull out, find our resiliency, find a deeper meaning in what has happened to us and what has become painful and hurtful in our lives. So I think this is an incredibly teachable moment, in fact, and particularly, I think, uh, coming from somebody who works not just in her personal grief, but with other people, as you say, that are moving through those grief uh, processes, I think mm-hmm. it's not even mm-hmm. the word I'm reaching for, but the grief processes, um, the experience of grief themselves. Is this something that you witness as well in your community and with the people you work with that there is a profound meaning in some sense that can be found through pain and grief? Mm-hmm. If we're willing to kind of see that gateway, open that door. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, anytime that any of us are willing to be fully present to what is occurring in our life, including the pain and the suffering, that acceptance is the doorway. Mm. Whether we understand our pain and our suffering as a grief process or not is maybe besides the point. Great. However, in many ways, we are all grieving something. <laughs> yeah. People can come to my practice and be, you know, um, they might be grieving the loss of someone, but sometimes grief shows up like, I'm a new mom and now I'm grieving the life that I used to have. I love my kid, but who the heck am I now? Mm. You know, they're, the, this kind of grief of like a, lo- a sense of a loss of self, perhaps. That's also grief. People come to me in situations of difficulty in their relationships and they're grieving the love that they've lost or the love that they long for so desperately. Some people are grieving for the little kid they used to be who got shunned or quieted or who didn't have time to flourish and, and they have to go through the process of grieving for her and with her and through her Mm -hmm. so that they can become more fully and unapologetically, as you would say, themselves. Yes. So grief is not just like, oh, this one thing of, oh, I lost somebody or death happens or loss happens. It's ingrained in every aspect of our human experience. Yeah. And your human experience quite literally took you through many instances of not just your own grief, but Mm -hmm. also witnessing others grief, as you say, and moving through that. Mm -hmm. Uh, In your talk, you actually took us through your life and your travels from Mm -hmm. your childhood right through to adulthood and your work Mm -hmm. in both Guyana and Tanzania, Mm -hmm. which arguably I would say shaped some of your perspective here. Talk Mm -hmm. to us about those learnings and that work and what Mm -hmm. came out of it? Yeah. I, hmm, what a great question. I mean, how much time we got? (laughs) As much as you need. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here for it. You know, so I grew up in Iran. I, I remember, it's funny, like, how funny how at the beginning of this talk, I said, you know, who were you before the world told you who you would be? I distinctly remember being probably about six years old, six, maybe seven, and going to this kind of like, um, hmm, I can't I can't think of a word to call it, but like a place where there's lots of different booths around and you go and you like visit these different booths based on different organizations. And I feel like it was for World Peace Day or something like that. Uh. My parents had took me and my three siblings to this convention of some kind. I think it's the best way I could say it. Um, And this was in Iran. And I remember getting to the UNICEF booth. Now, this is at the time that like UN still had some representation in Iran. 
Um, and I remember getting there and there were like postcards that you could purchase and there was crayons and you could, you could draw something and there was a drawing contest. I remember distinctly after this experience of, I, I feel like I drew something there and we submitted it for the contest, blah, blah, blah. But what I remember is that the adults in my life had this story about me from when I was really young that you're going to work with UNICEF, you are like a globally hearted person. Oh, wow. And I think I really like took that on in many ways, you know. Uh, so when I was 19, I went to Guyana and this was probably my first um, it, well, first of all, it was my first time traveling by myself. I had never traveled by, by myself before internationally. So I, so I moved to Canada with my family when I was 12. And then at 19, right. I made the decision to go to Guyana. And it was a big decision. No kidding. For me and for my family who were not, I have to be honest, consulted before <laughs> I made the decision. Um, but it was part of that whole vision of like, yes, like contributing and, um, you know, doing meaningful work and giving to people who are less fortunate. Yeah. And I went to Guyana with an international volunteer organization uh, who, and we were doing HIV AIDS education in small villages along an offshoot of the Amazon river. And in my mind, prior to going, I thought like, yes, this is me stepping into like the work that I'm going to do in the world. <laughs> oh my goodness, was I young and naive and mm -hmm. totally misguided, totally believing that quote unquote help comes from that place. Uh. Because the reality is that I was there to learn. I wasn't there to teach anything. <laughs> I mean, great. I taught some young women my own age or maybe slightly younger or slightly older than me, like how to put on a condom correctly on a banana. Yes, I did that. Yes. yes, I talked to them about like how you do or don't attract, get uh, HIV. You know, we, we did some like basic education things. But what I learned <laughs> was much bigger than that. Yeah. What I learned is that no amount of information out towards someone else is truly helpful. I can only be helpful if I'm fully present, if I'm fully hearing them, mm. if I'm fully allowing for their unfolding, if I'm not denying them, if I'm appreciating them, if I'm present for them, yeah. If I'm conscious enough to separate myself and my internal entanglement from their expression in the world. Wow. My holding of space can be helpful. Yes. But no amount of, you know, first world knowledge coming yeah. to quote unquote developing world does, you know, bleep all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I really had to control myself you, and you don't need to we can we can just put an explicit warning on this you <laughs> yeah yeah but that but was it, a really huge learning for me because yeah. I went there thinking that oh I'm here to educate other people but what I actually learned that was ah I was there to get an education on grief yeah wow it was a huge wake-up call it was a huge wake-up call and I came back to Canada with the most intense case of reverse culture shock. And I, you know, at the time I was studying cultural anthropology, sociology and women's studies like this. I, this was like my world. Yep. Um, I was desperately depressed because I realized like, oh, how I thought I could help was ego driven. Mm. was privilege-based, mm. was not conscious. It was a huge wake-up call for me. Yeah. So not only grieving and kind of holding space for and witnessing the grief that was all around you mm -hmm. there, mm -hmm. but also almost the grief of losing that identity too, that attachment to being a helper. I had to completely redefine what helping yeah. meant to me. 
or what contribution meant. Mm. This is a huge thing. You know, so many of us talk about, you know, live a purpose-led life and what are you here uniquely to contribute? We cannot answer that question honestly from ego. We cannot. True. Or we perceive that we can <laughs> until we get knocked down on our asses and then we go, oh, oh shit. <laughs> and then we go, oh, right? So it can take us some time to get there. For me, it just happened to be through that gateway. And yes, I, I experienced profound grief. I witnessed profound grief. Yeah. And then I came back unable to shake it. And also that part of me that had that globally minded, uh, interconnected oneness part was grieving desperately because mm -hmm. now not only did I need to understand how to meaningfully contribute, but I also had to understand how I operate as a human being in this particular meat suit of mine with this personality and this voice in a way that meaningfully contributes to the global family. Hmm. I love that. that's where clarity of purpose comes. And it took many years. Yeah. And, and much more uh, grief as well. I mean, take us mm -hmm. through mm -hmm. the next kind of phase of what we were discussing there is, is Tanzania. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in my experience of coming back from Guyana, I ended up being super, super depressed, basically, because the grief was so huge. It just took over my entire existence. Yeah, just overwhelming. And very slowly and surely with lots of, um, lots of support, lots of spiritual practices and such, I came out of that. Six years later, I went to Tanzania. Um, at the time I was completing my master's in um, psychology and art and play therapy was like my, my uh, niche. Mm. I was doing a program in expressive arts therapy. And just before I went to Tanzania, actually as like a mini thing, I went to Sri Lanka to work with Sinhalese and Tamil youth right at the end of the civil war. So the civil war had just been declared um, complete or ended, you know, like the travel warnings from uh, the Canadian government were like, red, red, red. <laughs> and so I bought my ticket. <laughs> so uh, I came straight from Sri Lanka from working with youth there to Tanzania, where I ended up working with an NGO, uh, an Irish NGO, actually, but the work was in pediatric cancer care and I was supporting local staff in how to bring art and play therapy to children who were living uh, on site at this cancer institute. And I was going to write my master's thesis about it. Now, because of the experience I'd had in Guyana of how devastating the grief was, I ended up going through my experience in Guyana holding myself in reserve. I was like, mm. I can't be super depressed again like that. I can't function like that. <laughs> right. um, first of all, it doesn't serve anybody. Second of all, I felt guilty as heck for the amount of grief that I was feeling. I'm like, look at these parents. The majority of the families I worked with lived for under a dollar a day. Uh, many of the children had very little food to eat. I was like, how could I be so selfish as to say, oh my gosh, my grieving heart, when this is the landscape, how dare I? Mm. So I numbed. I said, I am not going to experience this grief. <laughs> I'm just going to kind of just touch the surface of it. Yeah. However, I was, let's say I felt maybe like one or 2% of the depth of it. And, you know, I came back to Canada after the year I had spent in Tanzania. I spent time writing my master's thesis. I talked about it. You know, I remember when I made my final presentation to my cohort for my master's, people were like, you know, mind blown. And I remember thinking after that, because there was such a high reception of, wow, the depth of work and the experience you've had. And I remember being like, oh, wow, I feel totally numb. I hmm. feel completely numb. 
And that was the second wake up call. I was mm. like, oh, wow, I have really numbed a lot of this. But I really wasn't sure how to deal with it. So from right. time to time, I would think about my experience. I would think fondly of the children. I would pray. I would um, check in on the hospital. I would email back and forth with the doctor from time to time, you know, check in on the NGO. How are they doing? Send them some money when I could, you know, like little ways of staying connected and tethered. Mm -hmm. But really, I, I knew. I knew I was numbing it. So this all kind of took, you know, basically from 19 into my 20s and then into my 30s. And, you know, I was uh, in my, I don't know, not quite mid 30s when my grandmother passed. Mm -hmm. And my personal grief shattered all the blocks I had put up against my grief. Right. And there was just no denying the grief. And there was also no way to let it take over completely. I was a mom of two young kids. I was a practicing therapist. I was like, what the heck am I going to do? <laughs> you yeah. know, I was in this place where I was like, wow, I can't, I, the, the grief can't take over completely because then how am I going to live my life and contribute and be of service and, and live in joy in any way. Yeah. But also I cannot continue numbing it had cracked the numbing straight open. So that's when I had my own profound experience of mm -hmm. what's that in between where you're not numbing and you're not like letting it take over completely. What's the middle path? Ah, this is good. And that's where I began to understand what it meant to grieve fully and consciously. Hmm. I love that. Okay. So somewhere in between, this is, this is really a big takeaway. So I'm going to pause here, mm -hmm. just do a big deep breath. Cause I'm sure the <laughs> listeners right now are just having this uh -huh. moment right along with me, which is, and we have all experienced that to some degree on some spectrum yes. of wanting to avoid or numb out yes. of painful experiences and, or being so unnumbed, <laughs> so unnumbed, so immersed, so overwhelmed by it that we feel every last ounce of it. And there is some gray area in between. Mm -hmm. I don't want to even call it gray. I don't want to call mm -hmm. it gray. I want to call mm -hmm. it heavenly. I want to call it conscious because that's how you describe it. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, I love how you put that, Anna, because you're right. I don't think that it is gray. Mm -mm. In the middle, it's like a prison shining. It's all the frigging colors of the rainbow. It's not just one thing. You're right. But it's not some subdued version of one or the other. It's the whole universe right in the center there. Wow. Yeah. When we numb any emotion, we're not living mindfully. We're not living presently. We're not even really living. <laughs> we're just on autopilot moving day by day. We're not alive and awake. Yeah. We're just in process. And that has to do with grief, but it has to do with anything that we know, any, any experience that we know. And on the other hand, when we let our emotions run our lives in a way that we become fully defined by them, we hang our form identity on that hook, mm. say, oh, I'm just this highly emotional person or like even things like, oh, you know, hashtag all the feels, all the feels for <laughs> what though? For what though? Yeah. Yes, feel all the feels, but without attachment. That's mm. the unique identifier. I completely believe that we should feel our feelings fully. Yeah. However, when we do it with attachment to the feeling or attachment to our sense of self based on that feeling, we have missed the mark mm. because they're where an ego as well. So conscious grieving or and conscious living is truly about existing in this in-between space, mm. in this in-between space where we're not numb to our experiences but we're not attached to them desperately either. 
we are feeling them fully and living them fully without attachment and ego identification around them. I love this. And I know the listeners cannot hear me nodding my head like... (laughs) (laughs) like a crazy person over here, just nodding and nodding and nodding, deep nods. Yes, I feel all of this. And you are just articulating this space in such a beautiful way. And I'm, I am imagining the listeners probably out there right now thinking, if we have listeners that are sitting in the numbness, if we have listeners that are sitting in the hashtag all the feels zone Mm -hmm. with no purpose or direction as to why, Mm -hmm. Would you say, now this is, I'm going to kind of yank this from, from air right now and figure out how to articulate what I would like to ask and how to position this. Is it necessary to experience either the numbness and the all feels or experience both before you arrive at the the place of non-duality, the conscious grieving, the conscious living? Mm -hmm. Is it necessary to have the experience of either first? Mm. or if somebody's in that space do they need to stay there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What do they need to do that's a really interesting question Anna. i like that huh. so let's take it here first there is no one path to conscious grieving mm. because there's no one path to conscious living great so People who are already living consciously might move into an experience of grief and be self-aware enough and awake enough into their own life and in their awareness of this is my human experience and I'm in awareness of it. I'm the witness of the experience and I'm moving through it. Yes. And they can do that with ease. They don't have to go into numbing or into feeling with attachment, right? They don't have to. However, they are human. So even a conscious human, even an enlightened or awakened human could have the potential of experiencing a bit of a tossle, yeah. a bit of a like, movement between these two spaces. Because conscious living is also not stagnant. It's mm-hmm. not like, here's the thing. I think people who are like on the path of awakening and living a conscious life. It's not like one day they wake up or they have their awakening and that's it. They no longer um, feel the pull of ego in one direction or another because they are still human beings living a human experience. That timing might be shortened So they might feel the pull of ego into numbness, for instance, uh, but recover themselves more quickly into awareness, or they might find themselves in the desperate place of feeling with deep attachment to that feeling. However, they might recover themselves back into awareness more quickly because they've been practicing living awake and aware without attachment, right? So the more we are in this process of practice in this conscious space, the more it's like, you know, when you work out a muscle, you've like worked at it hard enough that it remembers, it remembers how to come back. Right. Mm. And if we haven't had that experience, sometimes we do fall on one side more strongly or on the other side strongly, or we seesaw between the two ends because we don't know how to make sense of our human experience. We haven't figured it out yet. And feeling our feelings And our tendency to numb against them happen because we are human. Yeah. Like, it's okay. So, darling listener, if this is for you, and you're like, oh, yeah, I've been numbing against that sadness about, you know, the distance between me and my partner for the last three years. I've been Mm. numbing that. I've just been on autopilot because we have the kids, we have the house, and we have the jobs. And, like, I don't want to feel the sadness that's okay. You're human. You're human. Mm -hmm. Find grace and generosity for the human part of you that has yet to figure out exactly how to live in awareness, but still enjoy. See, this is the part where most of us numb because we think if we become aware of it, it will be too painful. 
That's why we know, right? Okay. Let's just pause. If we become aware of it, or the fear is that if we become aware of it or make ourselves aware of it or focus in the awareness, because I, what I'm hearing is most of this is it is rooted in awareness. Yes. Then we will have to feel it. We'll have to feel it. And that will be too freaking hard. Good luck. <laughs> and we perceive that like, oh crap, if I feel it, then I might end up feeling like shit for way too long. Yeah. But the reality is the most magical part of living aware is that through awareness, that's where we can actually access peace and joy and ease because that is our essential nature. And the doorway to accessing our essential nature or our conscious self is the doorway of awareness. Mm. I mean, this is the reason I wrote my book, Police, for the love of God. (laughs) Buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) This is so great. This is so great, Tarani. And what I'm, I mean, as I'm kind of embodying this as you're talking and I'm really trying to absorb these words and what that feels like, Mm -hmm. tangibly, I'm thinking, okay, so if I'm out there and I'm wondering how to make my way through this process, if it's rooted in the foundation of awareness, I have to make myself aware. So practically speaking, what does numbness feel like? And am I in it? Mm -hmm. Or am I in numbness because I've identified or become aware of what that is and what that looks like in my life and how that manifests for me? Mm -hmm. And or am I in the all the feels, the hashtag all the feels moment? Mm -hmm. Again, sort of, am I aware of it when I'm in it? Mm -hmm. How can I be more aware of that particular state? And then there's this other thing that's arising for me as you're talking, which is, again, it's almost trust in self. Mm-hmm. that we can come back to the middle spot, that we aren't going to get lost in the swamp of numbness, that we aren't going to get lost in the swamp of the feels, mm-hmm. all the feels, the overwhelm, the grief. It does rely on self-trust in a way or cultivating trust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, you're right. Some, sometimes we can feel like we're stuck in one, one or the other of those extremes. Um, particularly if we're not practiced in how to trust ourselves or how yeah. to come back home to ourselves. Yeah. Yes, we can get stuck in one of those extremes, right? So if someone, let's say, hypothetically speaking, let's talk about a person who's in the all the feelings with attachment, what could that look like? That could be like someone who's really angry at um, their estranged parent, for instance, mm. they are angry and they will go and tell everybody about it. And every time, anytime someone says, Oh, like, are you spending the holidays with your family? And they go, well, no, because <laughs> you know, my so-and-so did blah, blah, blah. And they're like, so <laughs> have you met my mother? <laughs> have you met my parents? <laughs> so then we get to this place where like, there is an attachment of their identity as a human being based on that anger that they're holding onto. And they, it may have served them for some time because perhaps that parent was super toxic. (laughs) So they they created uh, some boundaries and with those boundaries came this anger, let's say. But if they've been carrying that around for years, even months, let's just say, (laughs) to some degree, they are cheating themselves of a deeper peace and a deeper ease and a deeper clarity and a deeper joy because they are attached to an emotion. Mm. They are deriving their sense of self by attachment. So then the work would be to, can you recognize, can you recognize that that's not the real you? Can you recognize that your attachment to that identity is an attachment that perhaps has served you or you perceive as having served you? Is it still serving you truly? And if it's not serving you, what do you need to come back home to yourself to release? Beautiful. And for instance, in that example, like forgiveness is hardly ever about the other person. Forgiveness is to free ourselves, right? And sometimes it is about trusting ourselves. And sometimes 
we don't know how to do that. And we need support to mm -hmm. come back to that. We need the support of a conscious community. We might need the support of a professional. Yeah. We might need the support of uh, learnings and teachings that may come our way through a book or a podcast, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. But those invitations are always there if we're willing to open our eyes and our hearts to them. Yeah. Let it be the gateway. Yes. I love that. This is, I mean, we're, we're, I'm just obsessed with this conversation. I love it so much, but I imagine that there are people out in the world living in their human experiences that have attachment. I think probably more so to the numbness uh -huh. than anything else um, that would say, this is a big topic I don't really want to broach. So I'd love to know, how do you find that people in general react to the topic of grief and loss? And when you're out in the world saying, oh, I'm a writer and I talk about grief and this is my work <laughs> and you're putting it out in the world, how do, you, how, how do people react to that topic? This I find so fascinating <laughs> because on the one hand, some people go, oh, wow, that's deep. Yeah. And I can sense like, just like their guard go up and like, <laughs> oh, I am not ready. I am so not ready. And then there's also the complete opposite of people saying, yes, hmm. you, you do, you write, you wrote about that. What does that mean? I think that might be what I'm going through, or I think I might need that book. Yeah. It, yeah, it's kind of two, two extremes I hear from people when I tell them I wrote a book about grief. I think the fascinating thing is that there might be a misconception that someone who's written about grief might, must be super depressed or their work must be super depressing. Right. I will tell you this right now. I love my life. <laughs> I love to laugh. I have deep joy running through me. Um, there's deep ease and peace here, and it is uh, a conscious choice to live in that way. I have decided to embrace the reality that grief will always happen in some shape or form, and that allowing myself to grieve consciously will only allow me to live more consciously and that will allow me to love more, mm. to be more, to contribute more, you know? So I think the reception really has very little to do <laughs> with me or the book or the topic. Yeah. It has to do with people's readiness to live a life that's awake and to allow themselves to go through, even to go through the darkness that is there to appreciate that there is also love there, that there is also light there. Yeah. That the two extremes and the rainbow in the middle all exist all at once, all the time for all of us, always. Yeah. And this is something you said in your talk, which I found so profound. It gave me all those goosebumpy moments in the middle of it was when you said, there is only grief and I'm sure I'm butchering this. So please get this right for me, but there is... <laughs> Grief only exists where deep love exists. Mm. Mm. And that has so many layers of meaning now that we've had this conversation, I think in a different way than I heard it the first time. Mm -hmm. But deep grief only exists where deep love mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's part of that is um, true to my personal experience. Yeah. Because I have personally experienced so much of the darkness in my own personal life, some of which is included in the book and some of which isn't. Mm -hmm. um, not all of my story is there, but the depth is there. I felt the things. I've seen the darkest of the dark and I've experienced the purest of love and I truly believe that both exist yeah because you really have 
lived it. You're like the walking, talking example of everything that you teach. Every experience you've had has, you've been on the extremes. You've been kind of in the middle. You've been embodying both the duality and the non-duality of all of this philosophy Mm -hmm. and belief system. I love it. I love, I love it. I love you. I love that what I read at the beginning, your beautiful words, um, that the three words you ended up at were three other words you may never think to associate with grief, elevating, life-affirming, and heavenly. So before we wrap today, just talk to me about that. Take us through the elevation, the life affirmation, the heavenly nature of this work. Mm -hmm. I believe that conscious grieving is elevating because it brings us to that fine moment, that edge of our life where we go, hey, babe, are you going to live awake? Are you going to sleepwalk this one? It elevates us. It says, show up. Show up for your life. Even with the pain and the suffering included. Show up. Live awake. You know, that's the message. It's life-affirming because when we're in that space of living and grieving consciously, we are saying yes to life. We are saying yes to what is present, to the isness, as I call it, of the present moment. No matter what comes up, we're saying yes to it. Mm. And we are saying yes to our life, really. And it's heavenly because heaven is not this place that exists outside of us. Heaven is an experience that we have internally, an experience of feeling deep, deep, true joy and peace and love and ease. And the gateway to that is consciousness. Hmm. So the gateway here, whether it's conscious grieving or conscious living, which honestly, kind of the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) They're really two sides of that same coin. You know, this is the process in which suddenly grief becomes heavenly. Because if we grief in a conscious way, we are grieving from full presence, from our deep connection to our essential nature. And when we are deeply connected to our essential nature, we already know that joy and peace and ease and love do not exist outside of us. They are us. They are our essential nature. And so we experience heaven because that is what we are. We are life itself. We are consciousness itself being expressed in this human form, which happens to grief from time to time. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I love this. And I love too, that we frame this out Um, earlier, and you did so beautifully, that there is no one path here. There is no one route. There is no one timeline. It might take you from Guyana to Tanzania to two children, and it might take you all over Mm -hmm. the world. It may take you up and down different experiences in your life. Uh, There is no timeline. There is no pressure. Mm -hmm. It really is just about becoming aware when it starts Mm -hmm. to feel like The time is right. The calling is there. The door is open. The gateway has arrived for you. What a beautiful message and kind of call in for all of us. Tell us, Tarani, where can listeners purchase this beautiful book? I've already bought two copies, but where where can the (laughs) listeners purchase Conscious Grieving? Uh, They can purchase the book on my website at www.mindonspirit.com. Mind on Spirit. Mind on Spirit. It will still be available for pre-order into early March. And then it will continue to be um, available on the website. Pre-order gives you some special perks here and there. So if you're into special perks like meditations, the special talk that actually you were talking about, Anna, that I gave for the unapologetic community. I've recorded it and it's available for people who are um, doing the pre-order so they can listen to that Lovely, Um, and some other goodies along the way. And then after that, still available on the website, it will be going on Amazon and at the end of March, as well as being available on the ebook format for those who like to read their books in that way. And it's ready when you are. 
you know, that's kind of, (laughs) I love this. And I will tell you that whenever you're ready, this is definitely not going to be the last you will hear from Taryn A. There is so much more. I think the path is, I can visualize it as we're speaking. There is a path kind of opening for you as well, doors opening so that you can spread this very important message, ego-free, attachment from such, but in just a spirit-led way, as we said at the beginning and at the top of this conversation. Uh, I love you. Thank you for being here. I love you too. Thank you, darling. What a joy to be in conversation with you. And thank you listeners for tuning in, not just to this conversation, but to yourselves in deeper and more profound ways. Yeah. Those words tuning in has a new meaning now. Uh (laughs) You're not just tuning in. You are like tuned in. You are Uh tuned in finding that space for yourself. Um, Taryn thank you. I know I'll have you back at some point, but I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. My joy. Thank you for having me. I am so thrilled to have had Taryn here. Uh, And one of the things that I wanted to add, as I often do at the end of these recordings, are my thoughts, answering audience questions or just letting my secrets out. Because that's what this is all about. Secrets are out. They're out of fashion, they're out of style, but they're out right now. And here is my truth today and why this conversation is so big for me. Because it was my own grief, my lost identity, my lost health after my accident, my lost state of perfect mental health, in quotes, that brought me to the work I am now doing. And trust me, I spent a lot of time in the numb. And I still do some days. And I also spent a lot of time in the fully feeling space, the overwhelm, where my trauma and my grief and my sadness took over my entire body and mind. I can remember moments of trauma and panic where I would feel a burning anger and frustration in my throat, enough that all I wanted to do was scream. And it hurt. I would scream and I would sob and I would beg for the pain to end, the frustration, the inability to feel a sense of control over myself, my mind, my body, my feelings. It was debilitating. And the more I sobbed into that mental pain and frustration and anguish, the greater the physical pain in my body would become. And the cycle would then continue from chronic physical pain to chronic emotional pain and then emotional pain back to physical pain And it went on and on. And so I deliberately numbed out. And for a time that did work. It was actually what I needed in order to get the pain down, to keep it at a reduced level so that I could function. And that did work very well. But it also made me avoid some incredibly important messages. It forced the breakdown of relationships in my life, some of them, and the path, the space to my own conscious grieving, conscious living, Um, what I probably would call conscious feeling, feeling with more consciousness. And as Taryn says, not attaching to the feelings really shapes my work. Now there is no bypassing, but there is also no immersion, full immersion uh, without safe support from professionals. I will put a period at the end of that sentence. There is no bypassing, but there is also no immersion without safe support. And it is always about recreating the narrative of what those feelings are and how I allow them to show up, what I make them mean in my day-to-day life. And if you ask me why, why any of this? Why conscious feeling? Why continue on when pain is so deep? The answer is twofold. First, because I know and through my work with Deepak, I know that grieving happens in every moment. First you hear my voice, and then it disappears. That moment has died, and another one has been created. We are constantly moving through processes of births and deaths. The birth of a new breath, the death of a breath, the birth of a new breath, again. This is happening constantly in our life. So why continue on? Well, as Taranay puts it so beautifully, the answer is love. And for me, the answer is always the anticipation of that beautiful, hopeful space, that new breath that exists after. 
And for me, my love, my new breath exists in the form of my two young daughters, my daughter Ava and her little sister McKenna, who, though they don't know it, consciously at least, they inform my reason and they push me back to the center every single time. Thank you for joining this edit of the Unapologetic Stories podcast. If you're ready to share your truth and rewrite your personal life story, connect with me at unapologeticstories.com for all the details on speaker training, storytelling, and strategizing your way through this one big life. If you've enjoyed listening, we would love for you to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast listening app or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Unapologetic Anna for new speaker training start dates. Until next time, stay brave, stay unapologetic, and keep bringing in your truth. <laughs>